Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, kids. Do you like violence? Are you sick to death of pussyfooting around the truth while being constantly fed lies by news and big tech tyrants? If so, then come join me, Dan Smots, on The System Is Down, where we get weird, have fun, and dig into all the dangerous taboo topics like conspiracies, politics, religion, culture, current events, and everything your family just prays you don't bring up around the Thanksgiving dinner table. And I know that reality is scary to some people, so if you're easily offended, just ignore this and go back to making cat memes or whatever. But if you're ready to change the world for the better, come join me on The System Is Down at tsidpod.com or wherever you get podcasts. That's tsidpod.com. .com because the system is down and truth is taking over. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now entering the Second Big Comics Podcast, starring Mark Clare and Renzo Martinez. Vacation's all I ever wanted. Vacation had to get away. Vacation, I am back. My God, I came. I can you tell that I just came back from an actual vacation, a real vacation, a real unplug away from absolutely everything, even believe it or not, comic books vacation. Well, I did. I am the marvelous Mark Claire. I am back in the swing swing of things, and uh, I am back here speaking to Second Print Nation, and of course. I would not be doing that. I would never do that unless it was a bonus show with our friend Dan Smots. Without my partner in comic book crime, the rambling, rambunctious one himself, Ramzo Martinez. Ramzo, how you been? Marky Mark, I had to hold down the house, bathe the kids, wash the dog, feed, walk <laughs> the plants, all that. Did you place. watch Sparky? Oh, shoot. I, yeah, come on. No, it's uh, it's been. You know how it gets. It, it's been, it's been hairy. And I don't think anyone really knew you were on vacation because we basically have been putting out more content the last month on the show and on the website on Patreon than ever before. So if you're just now hearing this, you can go ahead and thank us and thank our patrons for allowing us the opportunity to take two weeks off. Not off because we had to do a ton of prep before, but Mark and I both had stuff going on. He was on vacation. I had work travel. Believe it or not, I had to travel for some work. And then I, I bummed around to North Carolina and we still had stuff moving. Y'all are y'all are great. And y'all are spoiled with all the stuff we've been throwing your way. Well, that, that's how dedicated we are, Remzo. Uh, even when we need some time off, even when we have things going on in our personal lives that are not comic book related, uh, we find a way to make sure you still get this content every single Wednesday. It is a pledge. It is a promise. It is an oath. We are always going to be here. So through the magic of recording ahead of time, we were able to make sure you always had an episode uh, while I actually got to take time off in life. So uh, very wonderful. I am re-energized, reinvigorated, and ready to dive into uh, today's little story. And uh, before we do that, any more housekeeping? I've got a little little something I, wa- I want to mention. Toss when I was it. back at the... Uh, I, I have uh, at times mentioned the stash that I have, my comic book stash, 
at my parents' house in Connecticut. And I was uh, lucky enough to be able to visit my parents uh, during this vacation. My wife and I took a trip to see them in Connecticut, and I was able to dig through the stash. And uh, Ramso, this is something we were discussing before the show, but you know, when you're saving comics, when you're collecting comics, uh, sometimes you have your comics in sort of different categories. I have like a box of comics that is just the, I will never sell this box. It's all my Savage Dragon stuff, a bunch of Sandman stuff, some Swamp Thing. Like That's just a box of stuff that I love that you can't put a price on because I love the stories. There's another. There's other boxes that are stuff that, you know, I keep them in bags and boards. I keep them in good condition. Maybe I would sell them someday if the price is right. But, you know, they're valued parts of my collection, but not necessarily, you know, connected to my heart. Every two years, I do like a purge. So, like, for the Ooh. first time in three years, uh, about a month ago, I sold, like, almost 200 copies of stuff where I'm like, why did I even have this? And, you know, <laughs> I, I totally understand. And there's always a buyer. If you have a comic, someone will buy it or at least take it for close to free. I, so. I got rid, I got rid of all of them within a couple of days. I mean, a couple different yeah. uh, used bookstores, sent them to a couple people for free, sold them to some others, depending on the stuff. I mean, it's a it's a good time to be alive and to be a collector. Indeed. Uh, well, there's also something called uh, that you actually referred to when I described uh, this box I have. It's a box of comics that are just they're in there. There's no bags. There's no boards. They're comics that I just for whatever reason, I guess, when I was a teenager, just didn't even deem worthy of spending the five cents on the bag and board for. But I wanted to keep them anyway. So I, I went through that box a little bit uh, while I was on vacation. I grabbed a little stack of comics and I brought them back with me. So a couple things I'm going to do with these comics. One. I'm going to fire up a little new show on Patreon. Right now, I've been doing uh, the Random Marvel Comics podcast, where I hit the random button on the Marvel Unlimited podcast, read whatever comic comes up, and review it. I have a lot of fun doing that. Uh, I'm also going to be doing that with some of these, uh, I guess, fuck it pile comics that I'm going to be going through. It's mostly... Hashtag fuck it pile. Mostly mid-90s stuff. We got some image stuff. We got some Valiant stuff. Uh, I think I got like a, a JLA task force in there. Uh, it's stuff that, obviously, if it ended up in this pile, none of it's going to be brilliant. Brilliant, but uh, it's worth going through. It's worth taking a little peek. You don't end up in the fuck it pile unless you earned it. Exactly. So uh, we're, we're going to find out if they were worthy of being in that pile or not. And uh, so that will be a little Patreon show I do. Maybe it'll be called Tales from the Fuck It Pile. I think I just, <laughs> we just named, that, named that live. And that's it. But uh, once I start getting through a few of those issues and doing some of those shows, I will be giving those away to future patrons. So keep that in mind, friends. In fact, why don't I just say it right now? If the the next page, anybody who signs up from this point forward, uh, from now through, why don't we say the end of May, or the end of the fucking pile, or the end of the fucking pile? Let's put it that way: end of the fucking pile. I think I brought home nine comics. I want to say didn't take a didn't take a whole whole bunch of them, just a few that I could stick in my backpack. Uh, so yeah, how about that? The next nine patrons, we'll, we'll fuck it, we'll do it live. The next nine patrons get a comic from from the fucking pile. Fuck just it. Like that. All right. Do it live! Uh, but I had to get it out of my system. <laughs> yes, he did. All right, one more time. Stop the hammering! Should we just do them all <laughs> while we're here? Stop the hammering. Um, one series that I do own that is absolutely not in the fuck it pile, but I, I do own the original issues of, and I will keep these forever because they are b absolutely beautiful and stunning, and that is the series we're going to be looking at today. This is a series called Marvels. It is written by Kurt Busiek, who has uh, been a reference on the show before. He wrote the uh, Avengers series that came out in 1998, uh, where he teamed up with George Perez to kind of uh, revitalize the Avengers uh, on a great 25-issue run that I'm also covering on Patreon for uh, Through Claire Continues, my other series I've been doing there. 
there looking at that Avengers run. So I'll be I'll be peeking back into that one sporadically. Uh, but it's Kurt Busiek writing and the art is by the great, the incredible uh, Alex Ross. Now, Remza, before we dive into this one, what is your experience with Marvel's? Have you read this before? I have not only read this, but it's it's part of, you know, what, what I consider one of the greatest stories of all time. And I'm not going to let that alone influence uh, my score at the end. But I mean, Alex Ross alone. <laughs> Spoiler alert. He like I, I can't. I mean, how can you spoil <laughs> anything by Alex Ross? I mean, Vincent Van Gogh, Vermeer, you name the greats. Alex Ross, I, I hate it when people call him a comic book artist because that undermines so much of what he is. He he draws paint and does paintings worthy of God. I will say that they are divine. I'm not afraid to say that either. I mean, I, the man's work speaks for itself. He's best known. I believe Marvel's was his first, uh, the first work he really became known for. He had done some comic art before that. Uh, but the 1994 miniseries Marvel's is where he really made his name, uh, with just his absolutely stunning painted art, uh, throughout this book. And, uh, he would hit that would actually uh, launch him into several other book books that I'm certain we're going to look at at some point down the road, uh, including kingdom come from DC, which is kind of like, the, it's kind of like a mirror image of, of Marvel's. Whereas Marvel's looks at the past of the Marvel universe, Kingdom Come looks at a, a potentially grim future of the DC universe. If I had to create a time capsule for like the next millennia or something, and you asked me to put one one comic in that time capsule, it would be Kingdom Come, hands down. You know, there are other stories that I read more often. There are other stories I've got more fond memories of. But in terms of its significance, its ability to just be a powerhouse of storytelling and artwork is in the time capsule. I agree. I mean, it's definitely I don't know how many books I get to put in that time capsule, but it would definitely be on the list. Uh, Just and, and. Luckily, Alex Ross has also worked with some incredible writers on these projects that he's that he's well known for. Uh, but throughout all of these works that we look at, when you look at an Alex Ross work, it, it kind of even wouldn't even matter what the what the story was in some ways, because they are just individually beautiful works of art. Uh, every single panel, every single splash page, uh, you can never read a word and you would be in awe just of the art alone. So yes, yeah, spoiler alert, we're probably going to rate the art pretty damn highly on this before we even talk about the story. Pretty high. Uh, yeah, Alex Ross, also another series that he, that he actually uh, reunited with Kurt Music to work on uh, is a series called Astro City. And I believe, based on previous conversations, I do not believe you've read this before. Is that correct? I've read... So it's funny. I've not read like the main Astro City series that was out. And then they had a bunch of small, uh, like limited series. I've read some of those. Like um, uh, Astro City Tarnished Angel is probably my favorite. Uh, then there's, I think... Um, Tarnish uh, Astro City Crucifier. It's the one with the guy who's like a a vampire priest, and he has like a altar boy sidekick. No Catholic jokes intended. Uh, there was that one, and uh, a couple of others. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 been one of those off and ons that I read in high school, and I, I always tell myself like get get the collection. You could buy like all the graphic novels from the Astro City series and universe and like a big box collection. I want to get that for myself one day, but I think I'm just going to have to pick up some of the stuff I already read and maybe a few of the others I hadn't just to at least get it in my graphic novel library because I, I feel kind of embarrassed that I'm lacking in that. 
Yeah, it's it's an absolutely stellar series and another one on the long list of stellar series that we will get to at some point in this podcast. That's why you got to hit that subscribe button because you don't want to miss a damn thing. Stick with us for the long haul. We're not going anywhere. We're going to be old men in, uh, I mean, some would argue one of us is already an old man, but we're going to be old men sitting in our rocking chairs, barely able to utter words out, still talking about comics. Just, just be with uh, us in the, the moment, folks. It's the SBC promise, my friend. So if you stick around, we will as well. Uh, but for now, we're going to be looking at Marvels Today again, written by Kurt Busiek, published in 1994, art by Alex Ross. And we start off, uh, we learn a little bit about this guy. He is basically uh, the main uh, character, the protagonist of this story. His name is Phil Sheldon. He is a photographer in 1999, uh, 1999, 1939, the 1939 version of the MCU, or not the MCU, but the, the Marvel Universe. And, um, now, what's interesting about this, that kind of the time period now, and like Marvel is Marvel and DC do continuity in different ways in terms of dealing with the past and referencing past events. DC kind of just updates, like does these crisis events and rewrites history and and kind of, re, you know, fixes everything to the best of their ability. Uh, you can argue about how well they do that or not. Uh, Marvel doesn't really do resets so much. They kind of just update history as you go so i I call them gotcha moments because it's Mm -hmm. one of those things where they'll retcon something or add or take out something and they'll never explain it it's just like a wink to the audience of this is what's going on now and we're just gonna deal with the rest later right it's like an acknowledgement that look uh we have to just to, to have this make sense and have things take place in the present day some of these things that happened in the past uh, we all have to agree couldn't have happened at the timeline that they originally happened on. So, for example, like what might have happened in the Vietnam War at some point, it happened in the Gulf War, and we're just not going to talk about when that changed. But suddenly, the, the storyline is going to be that way. I think yeah. what Marvel editorial established, like uh, probably in the early two thousands, was take the last ten years, and that is when the Avengers first formed. So the Avengers as a team will have always formed 10 years prior to right now. That's about right. That seems about right. Because the idea is you've got the Avengers and then like right around the same time, you got the Fantastic Four. And then I think it's like five years after that is when Spider-Man is supposed to be bitten. So it's like the Avengers is always 10 years ago. Spider-Man is always five years ago. That's why everyone got pissed of Brand New Day, because that was like everything means nothing now. But just just assume within the decade, there's a sliding scale for Marvel. That's why when they update things, it's like one of those gotcha moments, because why go ahead and change up everything when you could just fine tune it? And- as you go along, kind of like taking care of a car. Yeah, and I, I gotta say, I prefer that method as much as I have enjoyed a lot of DC's crisis events, which we will look at in future episodes of this podcast. Um, I, I prefer, in terms of just continuity purposes, it, to me, it's just easier to do this Dude, it's tweaking like, it's method like being, that Marvel uses. It's like being in a relationship with Chris Brown. You might love him, but Chris hits you. Come on, man. <laughs> Rihanna, he don't love you. And sure, the beatings do keep things interesting, technically, but you don't want the beatings. We've really already gone too far with this. I'm in a domestic Um. (laughs) abusive relationship with DC Comics. Yes, I think we all are. I think we're all in an abusive relationship with comics, period. Uh, You know, it's like my relationship with um, one Mr. Jonathan Hickman. It's, It's another example. Or, or Tom King. I just, I just want to scream out the line from Brokeback Mountain. I just don't know how to quit you. <laughs> <laughs> if 
Thanks to our, our wonderful uh, patron and fan, Prime Meyer, for actually making that meme as we called upon it in the last episode. <laughs> That's how you know you got real fans. When you ask for a meme and it is created before you even realize the episode dropped. Shout out to Prime Meyer. Say no more, fam. Say no more. All right, but diving right in, Marvel's number one. This takes place, like I mentioned, in the Marvel Universe 1939. We are following this photographer, Phil Sheldon. He's kind of just chilling and smoking ciggies with his friends uh, in suits and ties and hats, as everyone, I believe, did in 1939. Uh, and it looks like, man, everyone's smoking here. Everyone. This was really the day, the day and age when literally everyone smoked cigarettes. Get me a cigarette and ham sandwich, pronto! I'm pretty sure even when I was in college, like it seemed like almost everyone smoked cigarettes, at least when you were at parties or that kind of thing. But this is back in the day when like everyone smoked cigarettes. Mom smoked cigarettes. Dad smoked cigarettes. The kids, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your aunt, everyone smoked cigarettes. And there is so much smoke in this scene, in this opening scene that it's just like, wow, this is they really smoked. When, when I was at the Washington <laughs> Times, they had wall mounted ashtrays in the bathrooms. That's amazing. Those were the days. Those were the days, you see, Charlie. Uh, but anyway, Phil and his buddies, they're all talking. And someone's got to go cover this event. It's the unveiling of the Human Torch uh, from this guy, Phineas Thomas Horton. Now, uh, I didn't assign this to you as part of it, but I also read... Uh, it's a very short story. It's uh, Marvel's number zero, uh, where it just tells the kind of the tale of the original Human Torch, Jim Hammond, who was a, an android. And uh, he was created by this guy, fin Phineas Thomas Horton. And the only thing is, somehow, when he made the android, uh, the way he made it, when his chemical, when his skin came in contact with oxygen, it turned into flames. It didn't harm the android, but he's, he's uh, yeah, he's flaming. So that is why he was the Human Torch. He was unveiled at this uh, science uh, meeting, conference. I don't know what it is, but he's unveiling it. And uh, Phil Sheldon is there to cover it. And uh, everyone is kind of in awe of this, uh, all the reporters. But a lot of them are just kind of like laughing at it, too. They're kind of like, oh, we should have brought our marshmallows. What, you just doused a doll in kerosene? But Phil, Phil's got an eye for this. And he really hones in on the Human Torch. He is there to capture this this sort of beautiful creation, I guess. And uh, he, he's, he kind of makes eye contact with the Human Torch. And he says, it looked straight at me. So I really enjoyed this. I, I really liked this because because it, it shows us that the Human Torch, as, as the the rest of the audience realize this is a true living creature, uh, really the first superhero in the Marvel Universe. Uh, there have been other super characters in the past of the Marvel Universe, but this is really the first the first creature or the first uh, whatever you want to call him that actually had superpowers. I think this is back when it was like timely comics. Yeah, I mean, maybe when the, yeah when when this when this first Human Torch story came out in 1939, that that, that may be true. I'll take your word for it because I'm, I'm not going to do live research. Screw Google. Yeah, screw Google. But you know, uh, so yeah, he is. Uh, he's uh, unveiling this this flaming uh, flaming android creature. But everyone is horrified by it. Everyone is scared of it. Uh, Philly Phineas Thomas Horton, the inventor, he ends up burying the Human Torch. This is a little bit that I'm stealing from that episode. Uh, episode here I go. It's not a second print comics episode, my friends, unless I call the episode an issue. You think you'd have enough time on vacation to get this straight? I didn't spend my my vacation doing issue episode drills, but maybe I, maybe I should have. Uh, Phineas Thomas Horton ends up burying the Human Torch because he doesn't, he doesn't want it to get destroyed. Uh, this part isn't in the comic that I assigned to you. I'm just I'm just taking this from issue zero. Uh, but he feeds him information. He basically like teaches him everything about this world, but he can't experience it because he's buried. And at some point, uh, oxygen like leaks into this tank that he's buried in, and he reignites the flame, busts out, 
And uh, he even hears uh, Phineas Thomas Horton calling at him. He's like, yeah, you know, Human Torch, come back. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going back there. This guy just buried my ass. So that's how the Human Torch was basically birthed into the world as as the first uh, the first superhero. Um, so yeah, that that is how we first meet the Human Torch, and we are now seeing this story from the viewpoint of Phil Sheldon, who is there to capture it all. What did you just think, just of the re- of this first opening scene, uh, seeing Phil Sheldon basically there live in person, capturing the moment of the the reveal of what would become the world's first superhero in this universe. So one of my favorite series that has not, you know, been given a lot of love recently, they, they, they wanted to adapt it into a TV show and it died like in, in production, but like uh, it's damage control because what damage control is, it's a Marvel series about the people that go in and clean up after a battle between superheroes and supervillains. And that way you could really see what it's like to be a citizen in the Marvel universe. I, I really want to say that damage patrol as a concept, while it did exist in like the eighties, I think it was introduced through uh, the invincible iron man, uh, what really makes damage control series I like is where it's based more off this, where for the first time ever you're seeing the Marvel universe truly through the eyes of a regular person who's not associated or attached with the world of these Marvels, these superhumans. So, I mean, this series has long-term effects, not just through the Marvel universe, but it, it you know, in very many ways, it influences, uh, Alex Ross's other work. Uh, you see the same type of narration storytelling in, uh, in kingdom come, you see it through Astro city. And I think it's always one of those moments where it really shows you just how, you know, we, we, we read these comics and they're so sensational and fantastical and obviously fiction, but it gives you that moment of, wow, what would it be like if this was really right in front of me? And that that's why I love from the get go here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what what makes this series unique on the surface is the art of Alex Ross. But what really makes the story unique is the perspective of, of seeing this story from the civilian perspective at all times. You really never switch to the perspective of the heroes, of the superheroes, of the X-Men, as we'll see in later issues. Uh, you always see the perspective of Phil Sheldon or those around him. So it really is um, it, it, it's really kind of like the most realistic look at what things might be like if superheroes really did show up. I mean, it shows the honest reactions of people, like people being horrified at this flaming human just just you know flying around town now, uh, as it is with the original Human Torch. So uh, we continue here. We do see the Human Torch uh, as he kind of breaks out and uh, you know kind of becomes a uh, the first hero of sorts. First he's first he is feared, and later he starts doing sort of you know heroic things of sorts. You know, stopping bank robberies and and things heroes kind of do. Um, Doris. Now we we meet Doris's uh, kind of love interest here. Uh, I'm not Doris' love interest. Doris is Phil's love interest, I should say. She bursts into this diner where Phil is just having coffee and starts ranting and raving about this this naked man. And she's referring here to the first appearance of Namor, who uh, she she details he kidnapped an, a, a bandaged girl from the hospital, and she said the bullets didn't even hurt him at all. And what I like about this, I mean, I don't know the specific stories. Uh, necessarily, I've read a lot. Of, I've read a, a good amount of Silver Age stuff, but I, I don't know the specific story. This isn't even Silver Age. This is actually Golden Age comics uh, from the 1940s. I don't know the specific stories that they're referencing here, or if they are referencing a specific story. But I just, again, I really enjoy the perspective 
of seeing it from Doris's point of view, seeing the description of what's happening, uh, you don't say like Namor, Crown Prince of Atlantis is here. Uh, a regular person would say, no, some naked man was here getting shot by bullets and and, and they weren't affecting him. And he, he held like, you know, you're just describing what you're seeing. And that, that's what I really enjoy about the perspectives that we see from the characters in this series, because they're basically just describing things they never thought they, thought they would see. They're describing things they don't understand. And they're just telling you what they're seeing. <laughs> you know, they're not giving you this long winded explanation, this exposition that we often get in comics, detailing everything that's going on, uh, like from the perspective, like the God perspective, so to speak, uh, where you just know everything that's happening through the narrator here. You just know what's happening through the narration, through the thoughts of the, these regular people who are for the very first time seeing supernatural, extraordinary things. And to me, it, it gives it a very realistic feel like th- this kind of feels to me, like what would really be happening in 1939, in America if these characters, the Human Torch and, and Namor, just you know, randomly showed up. Yeah, I mean, that, it's one of those moments where we think that this is a very simple concept when you actually see it applied to the page. This is why I think the comic book medium is you know, is often very scrutinized because they think it's very simplistic, but you could do things here that you can't often do through film. You can't even really often do it just through like uh, the written word on paper. There's something about combining text and the panel by panel imagery that makes moments like this almost better than they could have been any other way. Yep, absolutely. And uh, we continue here as she is uh, kind of describing the Human Torch's encounter uh, with the police. And I just want to point out, I love the art as she describes it, because we alternate between uh, seeing her actually describe it to Phil and others in the diner, uh, between uh, sort of a more flashbacky style of art that's kind of black and white. And it's just it's just beautifully, beautifully done, uh, the, the, way, the way this is all laid out by Alex Ross here. So um, I, I think I often, when I describe what's going on in these comics... Uh, I often, uh, I, I don't take as much time to describe the art itself. Uh, I try to, but I'm often just kind of going through the story, but, uh, you know, I just want to emphasize here, like the art is such an important part of all of this at all times. And I, I want to try to point it out when, you know, in, in certain cases here, but, um, you know, I just, I just love the, the kind of stylistic differences between the flashback sequence that Doris is describing that she just saw and like the colorization of, of the diner scene. Uh, the, the contrast is just, uh, it's just so beautiful and it just, it just works so well, uh, to give us the feel of the times, uh, the feel of what's going on, the feel of the, the absolute awe that all the characters here are going through uh, at, you know, to us, these comic fans, you know, to me and you, this might not be any big deal seeing uh, Namor with his little weird winged feet and winged, winged ankles on his legs and uh, throwing cars around. But to these civilians, these regular people in 1939 America, this is wild ass shit. And they're acting like it. A hundred percent. Yeah. And then uh, let's see, we, uh, we kind of get a little bit more with the human torch here. There's the aftermath uh, of a scene where he is kind of like, you know, I don't know, he maybe stopped something, but he also so melted a car in the progress and uh there's people talking in the in this like diner here they're like this one guy saying oh the, the things these freaks do making joes like me like you and me look like pikas pikas you see i added that part uh and we just lap it up i picture them all talking in like the you know 1930s style gangster uh accent you know uh i, I like to lock him up and throw away the key 
you see? And uh, that's when they realize they're sitting next to this guy. He says, that's enough. And apparently they are sitting next to Jim Hammond, the human torch who flames on uh, and just exits the the diner through the window, <laughs> through the hole in the window that he burned. Uh, so, yeah. So they're, they're, you know, we're learning that while these like characters like Jim Hammond, the human torch, are, are coming into the world, they are both awed and feared at the same time. You know, they're, they're doing good deeds, but there's damage being caused too. People are afraid of them. This all feels very natural to me. It all feels like the real, the real reactions we would get from people were this to be happening in the real, in the real world. Uh, Phil Sheldon is offered an assignment in Europe, uh, but he doesn't want to take it because he wants to stay and cover what's going on in the U.S. Like what's going on here. Like he just saw uh, this, like this weird dude with wings on his legs, like appear from the ocean and and, and uh, you know attack the police and get shot. He just saw this this human torch creature who now just roams the streets of New York city solving crimes you think he's about to head over to europe just because there's some hitler guy causing trouble over there no screw that small Phil stuff wants to stay here yes that's small stuff he wants to stay here and cover what he is now calling i'm not sure if it's exactly where in the issue he comes up with it but he he starts to refer to uh these new superpower creatures as the marvels and he kind of references like other ones that are appearing there's one panel where i don't even know who the guy is i think it's like Maybe it's the wizard or one of these different golden age characters that I'm not super familiar with. Uh, but we see just a guy in a cape, like jumping over a roof, like across a rooftop. So there's a lot of these characters uh, that are continuing to appear. And uh, he, he also says, like, the people had gotten smaller. You know, we're, we're just spectators now, uh, which is another line I, I love. Like, I emphasize the art so much in this, but I don't want to de-emphasize the writing either because the writing is just absolutely phenomenal in this. I think Kurt Busiek does a spectacular job, uh, both through dialogue and through the narration, of really conveying how these ordinary civilians are dealing with seeing this crazy shit happening. I mean, imagine you're just living in 1930s America, and one day, this practically naked dude is in the sky fighting a flaming human torch. I mean, <laughs> it's mind-blowing, and it's it's beautifully conveyed both in the narration as well as the artwork. And, and just one brief thing, like one thing I love about Alex Ross is that he, he actually really takes time to add detail and things that a lot of other artists really ignore. Like what I love is when you look into a panel, like over at the newsroom, for example, and you see everyone's face, but no one looks generic. No one looks like, you know, yeah. a, a place filler. What he does specifically, and he did this with his Superman rend- rendition is that he actually tries to model everyone, even side characters out after real people, whether it's somebody he knows mm-hmm. or somebody that he finds a photo of. And he's like, I really want to adapt it. He, he goes for like this super real, it, which, I mean, a story like this, it adds to the depth of these are people. This is you and I. It's like he's taking a photograph, you know, so even though this is very stylized in a way that is very much supposed to be a painting and everything, it, it could very easily be like an Instagram filter for all you know. Alex Ross is the Norman Rockwell of comic book art. Oh, my gosh. That is, that is the say. best way of describing it. I, that, that's what strikes me when looking at this art. I mean, and like you said, like every single person looks like a person. No one looks like a blurry face in the background. I everyone mean, matters. Yes, everyone matters because they do matter because really this is the one comic or maybe one of the few comics where really, I mean, we're seeing this mostly through the eyes of Phil Sheldon and sometimes Doris and other sometimes some other characters. But it's really the idea that we're seeing uh 
basically what are gods through the perspective of regular people. It's always it's always seen through the through the perspective of the the human beings that are seeing these spectacular spectacular things. Uh, so Namor and uh, Human Torch, you know, they they've got a feud. Basically, they're 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 an on on again off again uh, feud. If I was going to compare this uh, to pro wrestling, they'd be like uh, I don't know, Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens. This is a this is a deep cut for the wrestling fans out there. Sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're enemies, but they're always there. They're fighting forever, fight forever, as they did this past week at WrestleMania, which I was very happy to attend. Uh, but in this case, uh, you know, it's, it's Submariner and the Human Torch, and this is their very first battle uh, that we're seeing. And eventually, the torch falls into the water. Uh, we actually, see, at one point, we see this uh, woman named Betty Dean who kind of like defends Namor, saying, "Hey, this is just a misunderstanding. Uh, he's just trying to get justice for his, for his people." And again. I, I really like that you're not getting the full exposition. Like you would actually have to go figure out exactly the whole story, uh, uh, what this original story came from, if you wanted to, because that wouldn't fit the narrative of this. We're only getting pieces. We're just getting piece of, pieces through what these characters tell us and through what these characters know. Uh, so we don't understand the whole story. We just know this woman, for whatever reason, Betty Dean, she, uh, she's she realizes that there's another perspective to this, that, that Namor is here for a reason. He's not just randomly attacking, uh, attacking things he's trying to get some justice for his people so i like that we're getting little touches of what's going on without really knowing the full picture because that's how it would be in real life we wouldn't really know the full picture we would just know what some people are saying about it and you know just like today the news is so filtered by what random joe on the street thinks and that that's what filters to you and what we actually hear from the news is not necessarily the full story well that's the same thing that we're getting here we're just getting some people's perspective of what's going on here. Uh, Namor, he hijacks Radio City Music Hall and gets on a, gets on TV here to warn the, the Human Torch to get off his back. Uh, but eventually, this woman, Betty Dean, gets them to become friends. They even shake hands, uh, to which many civilians are disgusted by. I picture, I'm just going to make some another rest, rest, wrestling reference, uh, mostly for our friends over on the North-South Connection podcast feed, where this show does air every single Sunday. But I, I picture this first handshake between Namor and the Submariner, like the epic first handshake between Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man Randy Savage which took place I'm pretty sure before you were even a twinkle in your parents eyes Remzo I'm I'm trying to think what my dad was doing at the time (laughs) I'm not sure if your dad would know your dad I don't even know Uh, but anyway, uh, Phil, uh, Phil, however, he is like so overwhelmed by this that uh, it actually is affecting his his personal life, like his coverage of these events, because uh, he's engaged to this woman, Doris. And Phil actually puts off the wedding. He's like, you know, I don't know, man, in this world with these crazy superheroes, I feel like a husband has to be there, has to be able to protect his family, protect his wife. And I don't feel like I can do that uh, because I'm in this crazy world with superheroes now. And she's like, oh, uh, what? Uh, OK, so maybe you just take this ring back. He's like, oh, no, I didn't mean that. I'm like, yeah, you don't exactly. Yeah, Phil, come on. You're not waxing poetically, <laughs> Phil. You want to put it off but not put it off? Like, come on, Phil. Not, not. It wasn't gonna work this way for you, Phil. But anyway, um, Phil and Phil just thinks to himself, "Well, the word world couldn't stay like it is, like this, could it?" Uh, he's just thinking like this is like a passing thing, and you know, maybe once we get through this, he'll feel like more of a man. He'll feel like he can take care of his family better. Uh, we then see the arrival of one Captain America, who uh, we are seeing all these dun, different headlines. Dun, 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 dun. He is battling the Nazis, those damn Nazis. Meanwhile. 
Phil runs into Doris and he at the movies, uh, and she's with this guy, Bill Lumpkin. My God, Bill fucking Lumpkin? Are you serious, Doris? Uh, so there, there. That, that's all just to get us to this news, uh, this newsreel scene where we see, um, we see all these various heroes battling in World War II. So we see the Namor. Mostly, they're highlighting the Namor, uh, Namor the Submariner, and the Human Torch here fighting the Nazis. Uh, eventually, Doris does take Phil back so that they can start over. He's like, you know, we're, we're not going to pick up where we left off, but I'll let you start over. And I, I thought that was interesting here because it, it, it kind of there's a lot of parallels that go on between Phil's personal life and what's going on with the Marvels, these these uh, super powered creatures. So just as Phil sort of gets to start over here as well, the Marvels, uh, specifically the Human Torch and the Submariner, uh, they got to a new start here by being able to go out and battle the Nazis and really uh, implant themselves firmly as heroes, whereas before, yeah, some people saw, especially the Human Torch, some people saw them as heroes, but there was a lot of fear there, uh, especially with the Submariner showing up in New York and causing all sorts of mayhem, but now they were firmly established as as the good guys, at least uh, for a time being here as as the heroes. So they got a fresh start. Phil gets a fresh start. Everyone's happy. Did, uh, did they just introduce Nick Fury? It Was Nick Fury in this at all? Go to page 27. Page 27. All right, I'll be right there. Maybe I missed that. Page 27. I, I didn't notice this till now. Oh, my God. I, I totally glossed over. That is absolutely Nick, Nick Fury. Because they're talking, about Ma, here, this, they're talking about Ma yeah. Fury's boy going over and teaching them Nazis a pr- uh, thing or two. I totally wow. just glossed over this dialogue, but the, he even has the kind of like the kind of Fury eye, the Nick Fury eye here. Yeah. So, yeah, we got the debut of Nick Fury. Huh. That's why you're here, Remzo, for the details. The little things, folks, the little the things. things I gloss over. Yeah, that was in that same theme scene there. Um, yeah, I believe at the movie theater when they're when they're, right before they see the newsreel. Yeah, good catch, very good catch, astute young lad. Um, yeah, but Dor- uh, anyway, um, yeah, basically, uh, but all is not well for long because uh, the the relationship of Namor to the rest of the world is 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 uh, not always um, a, a straight line, so to speak. So we at some point we hear that Namor is now attacking everyone, and he's again battling the Human Torch. He's attacking Great Britain, and he. He sends a tidal wave to New York, and then Phil captures this epic, uh, I guess, final battle between Namor and the Human Torch uh, over New York City. And uh, during this battle, Phil gets, gets hit by a brick and he gets knocked unconscious. Uh, he actually ends up losing his eye and he wears an eye patch uh, for the, the remainder of this story. Uh, he then decides he is going to go to Europe as a war correspondent because, hey, that's where the heroes are now. They're all out there uh, battling the Nazis. So Phil's ready to go check it out. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he also references like there's more heroes all the time. More of these things are showing up. There's uh, like he references some random heroes from the Golden age like citizen v the wizard blue diamond how about we uh take a pause to do a little remzo what can you tell me about blue diamond anything i know nothing about blue Diamond. i know nothing either i just wanted to try it um i i, I do know the wizard i have heard of the wizard he is a, a part of uh, avengers history i believe the wizard was in one of the very early avengers stories I believe that's who Wonder Man was battling when he first. He was part of the All Winners Squad, which is also like the Invaders, and he was married to Lady Liberty, who is another member of the Invaders and the All Winners Squad. I don't know if they were two separate teams or if they just renamed them the Invaders, but in terms of Marvel history, they were like the first superhero team, and the Wizards gimmick was he. I, th- I think it's kind of stupid. He got mongoose DNA 
injected into him or like mongoose blood or something and he can become <laughs> really fast no one has ever reconciled whether or not that was like a thing that marvel still pays attention to because they were pretty they were pretty stuck on him getting injected with mongoose blood which if you're gonna get powers like that is probably the dumbest way i think i've ever heard <laughs> and sometimes they get pretty lazy with these origins um that's my favorite origin i've ever heard actually so <laughs> I don't know. Mongoose I don't know blood. what to add to that. I love it. it. Mongoose blood makes you go super fast, children. All right, and then we we kind of wrap up issue one here when uh, with Phil uh, again. Phil has has uh, firmly implanted himself in the on the battlefront, and the uh, the allied uh, allied heroes are diving in to fight the Nazis in a beautiful splash page to end this. We see Captain America with little old Bucky in his arms, which is really really makes it uh, pronounced. How much of, like, Bucky is a child. (laughs) Captain America is flying down with this child, this absolute child, who is firing a machine gun on the way down, uh, along with these other heroes. Uh, One of them is... I forget his name, Arcus or Archon or something. He is actually was like kind of the original vision in some way. Uh, Like the vision was sort of modeled off him. I I learned a lot actually, just just by analyzing this one panel. We also see a character that kind of looks like a, like an old school ghostwriter floating in that wasn't able to determine which Uh, one that is. Blazing skull. The blazing skull. Okay. Yeah. He, he goes on and he becomes a member of the, uh, of the Avengers and, and what actually no the defenders and what, what's crazy about the blazing skull archon Jim Hammond and Toro I don't think yeah Toro's here Toro was like, yeah, Toro's his, here. His, his, like sure they is. were all they were all mad scientist creations except e, e, well even even Captain America if you think about it with Dr. Erskine I think the only one that was it was I mean, Lady Liberty, I don't know how she got her powers, but I do know, like, the, like with the wizard, his thing was the mongoose blood. And it's like, that's just, they got real lazy. All right, moving on to issue two, Marvel's issue two. This one has a beautiful cover. They all have beautiful covers, but uh, I just love this cover showing Angel of the X-Men carrying this uh, little mutant girl who we will meet later, uh, later in this issue. But uh, Marvel's issue two takes place in the 1960s, where, of course, uh, we will see that Phil has aged a bit. He is probably in his maybe 50s or 60s at this point. And uh, we're just kind of through the art and through the narration. We're learning about all these heroes that have appeared in recent years, including the emergence of the Fantastic Four, uh, Thor, Giant Man, uh, as well as a returning Captain America. Because, of course, during World War II, Captain America was frozen in a block of ice and returned later in the 1960s, or at least in the original Marvel continuity 1960s. Uh, of course, today, that's probably supposed to have happened in you know the mid-2000s, because, as you mentioned, the Avengers always formed 10 years ago. So uh, that's how we'll go with it. That drawing of the radioactive man has not aged well. Yeah, the, the <laughs> it's- I don't want to get woke on on anyone but to have the fat bald Chinese scientist glowing radiation <laughs> even I'm like yeah I can I can see where there might be a problem with that but it, it's a product of the times it's art I'm just impressed you knew that was the radioactive man. We we get this like this montage of all the Avengers, uh, you know, battling different villains. Uh, we see, as Remzo points out, the radioactive man, this uh, short uh, green Asian man, just spraying things at people on the streets. We see Thor battling the Black Knight. Man, the uh, Masters Iron of man. Evil get no love. No, they really don't. They really don't. Uh, yeah, so they're they're all getting taken oh, out by name, the Avengers. Can you name? Can you name who the who Iron Man is grabbing? The Black. This is the Black Knight, right? 
Thor has the Black Knight. Right? Oh, Iron Man. No, I, I couldn't tell who Iron Man was that grabbing. That is no. the Melter. And you know what you know his power is? He melts things? He melts things. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping it would be a little more complicated than that, but... But comics, so no. Um, <laughs> I, I like some of the commentary here, too. Like, uh, there's one uh, comment where Phil mentions, like, they're, they're talking about a, a, the Fantastic Four's pers- first press conference. And they say, well, man, the thing's looking at Mr. Fantastic like he, like he totally hates him. So, like, there, there's little things that the characters see that do actually play into the storyline. Like, because in the early Fantastic Four, it's not as much now. There's, there's always kind of a, it's more of a playful rivalry between Ben Grimm and Reed Richards. But in, like, the early classic Silver Age, Age, like like Ben Grimm like wanted to bang Reed Richards' wife or, or girlfriend at the a time, lot. Sue Storm. Like yeah, and was not shy about it. And they were rivals, and like he really did hate Reed Richards. So I, I like stuff like this. Uh, obviously, the relationship totally evolved over time, and it's really not that contentious anymore. They're pretty much best buddies, but they were kind of uh, it wasn't quite that way in the early Silver Age. So I like the acknowledgement of even how those characters were written at the time, just in in subtle little ways like this, just the subtle little lines in the story. Uh, we also see a new Human Torch uh, a signal. He, we see the Fantastic Four signal over New York City from the the Johnny Storm version of the Human Torch. Um, Phil is now he's decided to he's been taking pictures of these heroes all this time, so he's been pitching uh, an entire book of superhero photos, uh, a book that he would actually write, and he he is able to successfully pitch this book. So Phil's excited. He's got a mission now. He's gonna go create this book, kind of chronicling the rise of the Marvels as, as he has kind of coined the term. Uh, the X-Men, however, and, and I really like this issue because one, one thing I always have a problem with or I've always had a problem with historically, conceptually, when it comes to Marvel Comics is how every hero's all well and good. Uh, they all got their powers in all these weird ways. Oh, but if they're an X-Men, if they were just born with their powers, heaven forbid, now they need to be cast out from society and we need to shun them and then society hates them and we want to we create sentinels. And I always thought that was kind of silly. And I like that they actually kind of address why in this issue. Um, they Phil kind of talks about how, you know, it was one thing when these 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 new characters showed up like, you know, this Android that could flame or, or this, uh, this creature from the sea, the submariner from ancient, ancient Atlantis. Uh, they were marvels. They were, uh, above humans. They were something different. Uh, but they were separate, clearly separate from humans, but where, how they kind of explain it here is that the X-Men were seeing as a replacement for humans. Like the X-Men represented death. I believe Phil, Phil said at one point, because they were there as an evolution as a next step and they were actually going to replace mankind and that is why people were so angry about them and so fearful of them because they couldn't explain their powers uh, whereas all the other characters they could say okay Thor is this god from Asgard and he's here and, and that's weird but we know what it is whereas the X-Men were seen as, as as much scarier because they couldn't explain it it was just something that was happening to the world and and if, if these creatures were uh, these, these humans this next evolution of humans as the Homo Superior was just emerging, then that really didn't mark the end 
of Homo sapiens. And I really, really appreciated this explanation here. It's probably the first time I know that the X-Men comics have addressed it, but it just I never felt the understanding of it before because we're seeing it again from the perspective of the humans. I, I mean, this is one of those examples from issue one and issue two. Issue one, and, and this is why I'm glad that, you know, this is not necessarily a canon story. This is kind of like a side story, really a kind of like an indie art house piece if we're using film analogies. But what what is uh what is issue one it's about war propaganda with the human torch and, and the all winner squad and captain america it's war propaganda much like marvel comics was when it was timely comics and now what do we have here we have the x-men where it's very on the nose political commentary that's why i get mad when people are like oh i, I don't want politics in comics and it's like well <laughs> i mean comics have always been a, a very open comics were birthed from politics yeah it's like this is probably <laughs> the the one forum where politics was always like if you really wanted to get into something you couldn't get into it really through books because publishers didn't want to touch it and you rarely could do it on tv so, but you know it's like you look at this at the time and it was always written unless it's like the the very straight up war propaganda of world war ii and stuff but like you know into the 60s and onward i always i never felt like even even when you're dealing with like uh you know racial issues and green arrow and green lantern a green lantern and green arrow or the issue of drugs and green lantern and green Arrow. oh my gosh green lantern and green arrow covered a lot and uh you know yeah, uh, drugs did. and spider-man or the the racialist issues going on with x-men and all the other political and cultural commentary over the last you know 60 years of comics specifically I feel like there's a change because they used to propose these questions to the reader and let the reader decide. Now, it, what, what I don't like, and I, I've been hitting on Ta-Nehisi Coates a lot on, on my podcast where I will get kind of, you know, blazingly political sometimes. You, you don't insult your readers. You don't attack your readers. You don't say that half your readers are terrible people, whether you're left, right, in the middle, whatever. When it comes to this type of stuff, especially if characters we love, you've got to be more nuanced because you're dealing with something which is more personal for people. This is their heroes. This is their escapism. And, uh, you know, when I look back at issues like this, it's like, you know, you could talk about things in X-Men that you can't talk about otherwise. I never knew that Brian Singer's X2 X-Men United was talking a lot about the LGBTQ movement. And, you know, growing up as a as a young man where a lot of things are changing in the world, I'm looking it around. Was. I don't, I don't it, remember it, that. It was. I mean, he, he really tried to do that. He talks about it a lot. So, you know, here I am coming from a very Christian conservative household. I'm never going to go out and want to learn about this stuff. I saw X-Men. I look at the commentary and I'm like, oh, I can kind of understand it through that lens. So, you know, it's one of those areas where it's like through the through the comic book genre through the superhero genre itself you can always learn about things that you wouldn't always be open towards especially when it's not just in your face going at you yeah comics have always been a, a reflection of sort of the social dialogue of the times and uh to act like that shouldn't be in there is just to not understand what the medium has always been. Uh, so I, like, I, I love when comics show me issues and make me think about them in some way, shape, or form. It's more when they they t tend to take a certain stance and push that stance down your throat, uh, as some modern comics tend to do, that I take issue with. But the, the presence of, the, uh, of these commentaries, uh, not only do I accept it, I mean, it's uh, it's it's part of comics and always has been. So whether I, I like it or not is almost irrelevant. It's, it's part of the medium. Yeah, I mean, we, we've covered quite a few of those things. I mean, the best example of an episode we did was uh, 
Brian Michael Bendis' Secret War, which whether you're a liberal or conservative, that has universal praise across the political and cultural spectrum. Yeah, and like the the I know a lot of people kind of refer to Professor X and well, I mean, geez, that's that's really blatant. Professor X and Malcolm X, but he he's actually supposed to be, I think, more the MLK uh, of those two, whereas uh, Magneto is kind of like the the Malcolm X there uh, as it pertains to the civil rights movement. So these 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 uh, these social commentaries were always part of the of the comic book medium. But I think the the X Men issue really brought out uh, the ideas of of racial inequality at a time when they were very heated uh, without without being it over the head, you know. You could see it if you were there to see it, and and it makes sense. Uh, but it's you know they, they didn't beat you over the head with it. I, I don't think they ever made their readers any readers from any side of a political spectrum feel stupid for thinking a certain way about a certain issue. They kind of just present the issue through these characters and through characters having certain powers and and how the society reacts to them. Yeah, and as me as a as a religious right of center person, a lot of my favorite comic book writers are open liberals, but they're fantastic writers, and when they do do political commentary they do it in a way that still makes me feel included instead of treating painting me to be like what what uh ta-nehisi coates did where he made jordan peterson the red skull in the recent issue captain america oh is that where all that came from that, well, yeah i see yeah interesting Anywho, uh, the X-Men are being chased down here at, by like a kind of an angry mob after they're quote-unquote trying to kill a construction worker, but they have this scene where they're de- describing the ways they're trying to kill him, uh, but really, it's just a construction worker that fell, they tried to help, and eventually they did save him, and the people even say, like, oh, that was weird that they saved him anyway. It was like, well, no, because they were always trying to save him, but the perspective of the people watching it were just seeing these scary X-Men using their powers and just decided they were trying to kill him. So they're they're hunting them down. Phil actually gets kind of caught up in this crowd because uh, he's a human and he has fear too. And he ends up like, he just says, before I knew it, I had a brick in my hand. And he ends up throwing a brick and hitting Iceman like right in the head. Uh, which is interesting because Phil in the last issue back in the 1940s was hit in the head with a brick. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, but he, uh, there's a one line here that really sticks out to Phil. I think when they're, they're about to do something and they're like, no, let's just get out of here. They're not worth it. And that was the line that really stuck, struck with Phil when Cyclops said they're not worth it. And you know what, I think it's what made him realize a little more of the situation. Like, what do you mean? Not worth it. Like we're not worth what, what are we not worth? And he just said, and what they're really saying is like, these people that are trying to hunt us down, they're not even worth hurting. Cause that's going to hurt us more. You know, they're, they're not worth worth fighting back against they're not worth using our powers against and i at least that's how i interpreted it and i i think that struck phil as as realizing like okay these are these are more than just monsters you know they actually used restraint here because they didn't feel it was worth it using it against us um you could probably interpret that they're not worth it thing in a couple different ways but that that's kind of how i took it yeah i I agree with with how you put it because i mean it's it comes back to like the monster allegory like is a monster just a creation or is a monster their actions Mm mm-hmm yeah, and um, I think a good line that stands out to me here that I, that I wrote down in my notes here, he says, in a way, the mutants were worse than the supervillains. The eel was just a man in a suit. So to them, it was like, you know, yeah, this this villain, the eel, who I think the Black Widow took out in, in this issue, uh, he's just some weird dude in a, in a weird eel suit. So whatever, that's not that scary. But the mutants represented this new thing that mankind was turning into. Uh, they represented something far scarier to humanity than some guy dressing up in a suit 
prostitute robbing a bank, uh, which I think really puts things in a lot of perspective here in terms of how the X-Men were seen uh, in the Marvel Universe. Uh, Phil then gets sent to write about uh, Alicia Masters' art gallery because he's trying to get into writing here because he wants to write this book. Uh, so he sent the cover of that and they're like, hey, by the way, I think we think she's involved with the Fantastic Four somehow. So, you know, if you can ever uh, get some get some stuff with them, that'd be great. So he goes to this art gallery. And of course, the best couple, best comp couple of all time, Reed Richards and Sue Storm are there. And uh, we eventually find out that the Reed Sue wedding is coming along. It's Man, what's happening. the age difference between them? I don't know, because Reed does look substantially he older looks, here. He's he looks that. really freaking old. Yeah, I mean, he's got that that side gray hair and uh, the yeah, I mean, he he looks at least in his forties here, and I would say Sue, twenties at best. But I mean, they even say like Johnny Storm is there at this at this like uh, as well at this gala, and he's there like with some pretty teenager. They say, but I think he was a teenager. He so was that's okay. Yeah. yeah, okay. There's like that's a okay. four year age <laughs> gap. I forget my own age sometimes, but I remember most the ages of these people of these characters. But then again. As proven by uh, Paul Rudd and Wilford Brimley, people looked a lot older back in the 60s. True. So, you know, True. Reed might have been 35 here, but he looks 55 to us. Yeah, it's hard to say. Either way, you did you did good work, Reed. You did well. Um, <laughs> the end, the <laughs> Phil actually, uh, so then we, then we get this part. We kind of see some montages with Daredevil. We see some, some about Daredevil as well. Um, and we see some more about, you know, everybody hating mutants. But then Phil comes home one night. And he finds out that his there's some, some kind of chaos in the neighborhood because uh, people are they, there was some sighting of a mutant or something like that. And uh, he finds out that his family is actually hiding this little mutant girl uh, with this kind of she just kind of has like big eyes and a weird shaped face. And nothing really besides that. Uh, but they're hiding this girl in the basement. And uh, so Phil kind of realizes like he's, he's scared at first, but then he's like he realizes he sees the humanity in this girl's eyes who's just frightened. And he that's when he really realizes like, OK, like I can't. Oh, man, she's like baby Yoda. Yeah, she is. And he even like he even thinks of like the faces that he saw covering uh, the Nazi camps. And like he sees the same look in her eyes. So he realizes like, no, if he's going to cast her out, he's the monster now. Um, so that's that's really kind of. You know, completed Phil's evolution on that. I think on how he well, not completed because I, I gotta I gotta read the dialogue for this when he's just staring yeah. at the little girl and she's like, "Daddy got fired out of his work. Mama cried all the time. Uh, they said they couldn't take care of me anymore. That was all my fault. They went away." And then she looks at him and there are tears running down her face and she's like, "Are you gonna send me away?" That that punches me right in the gut. Yeah, yeah. You can't send that girl away after that. Um, so Phil decides to let her stay and wants to help her. He actually goes to Greenwich Village to try to find the X-Men. He actually sees Iceman and Beast out and about, but he gets too scared. He thinks to himself, well, shit, what if they remember me from throwing a brick at Iceman's head <laughs> in the alley? Which uh, they probably wouldn't, but it was enough to scare him off. Uh, we then get the Reed and Sue Richards wedding. The wedding is here, and it is spectacular, of course. Uh, I, I love this this big splash page showing the whole wedding, uh, you know, with the Avengers and Daredevil and all these other characters uh, in the audience. Just uh, another example of Alex's, Alex Ross's uh, just incredible, incredible artwork. Like, I want this as a poster in my house. I have to run it by the wife. Oh, a bunch of my a bunch of my comic book uh, short boxes are of Alex Ross's paintings. I've got Kingdom Come. I got Marvel Legacies. I've got. I mean, his. You you can't get better than Alex Ross. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. 
Uh, we then see when they're kind of hanging out at the bar post-wedding, uh, we see Charles Xavier, who is on TV debating uh, Bolivar Trask. And uh, it's weird they would schedule this the same day as the, the Reed and Sue wedding, this, this televised debate. Uh, but he basically says, like, yeah, Bolivar Trask. He's like, yeah, I got Sentinels. That's what's going to take care of you guys. And the Sentinel actually comes and attacks uh, Professor X right there. So the Sentinels are coming. The Sentinels are all over New York City. And uh, Phil thinks of his little you know, mutant girl at his house. And, and he, he runs back home. And uh, he finds that this girl has left a note and took off. And they will basically never know what happened to her. And that's the, that's basically the, the last we hear of that girl. I, I shouldn't, I should, I kind of glossed over this, but there's a really awesome scene where the Sentinels are seen flying over New York City, and the the light just like blinds everybody. And it's just, uh, just another you know incredible uh, visual for, from Alex Ross here. Um, and that pretty much ends this issue. Uh, what do you think here of issue number two? Man, this is like I'm I, I'm shaken by it. Because I, I mean, really, because like B- Bolivar Trask is just he, he's just American Hitler. Like, I mean, that, that really is it. And to see these people and, you know, it's not like what, what some artists do is they use darker shadings. They use certain ways of accentuating through the environment who is the bad guy. But really, all this looks like photographs. And, you know, l- looking at this, when you look at the, the dialogue and everything, when just the shouts amongst people as they're throwing Molotov cocktails going after mutants and stuff. I mean, even down to that little note from Maggie as she as she's run away and she's still thanking them. She's so appreciative. I mean, this is this is why comic books as a medium are pure art, because when you can combine fantastic storytelling with fantastic artwork itself, you know, I don't think any film, I don't think any other adaption into any other medium could do this justice. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, yeah, that I will we'll say it over and over again, but no one else could have done the art for this and, and had it convey what it's meant to convey. And I should say probably no one else could have done the writing for this. I mean, I, I've really come, uh, especially looking back at these Avenger stories and some of his other work, I, I've really come to appreciate the the writing of Kurt Busiek more and more and more as I've gone back through some of these older comics that I, I loved so much as a kid. And I'm really understanding like why they resonated with me then as well. Like he really understands superheroes. He understands how to write superheroes. And he understands how to kind of write the world around those superheroes. Uh, just, just an absolutely stellar writer. And it's, it's really the perfect package here with, with Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross. But uh, heading into Marvel's number three, uh, we are about two months out from the Fantastic Four wedding. And the public seems to want the Marvel's blood. There's all these different uh, like uh, headlines we see kind of going after the Avengers, questioning Tony Stark, why he why he why he's funding the Avengers. Um, they say about Iron Man. Oh, you know, oh, I guess Phil says this about Iron Man. Actually, he's like, hey, he just wears the suit. It's not like he built it. Like, I like that little <laughs> line in there. Um, we have. But uh, then before we know it, we have Avengers Day, like because it's, it's really this encapsulates the on again, off again relationship. It's a very schizophrenic relationship that the citizens citizenry of the Marvel Universe has with heroes overall, I'd say. I mean, one minute the heroes are on the outs. Uh, we're accusing them of some you know, villainous act. And next week they're back and we're like, oh, yeah, thank you, guys. You really saved us from that thing. This this seems to be a trend. Uh, But, uh, yeah, the Avengers had been framed for something or another. So they they held Avengers Day to to sort of walk in the back. Look at this specific lineup, though. It's Captain America who is leading the team. And then you've got Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, the children of Magneto and Hawkeye. All three of them are criminals. Two of them are mutants. 
Yep. Yeah. And this was a, a newer version of the Avengers that kind of uh, replaced the older version who kind of fell apart for, for various reasons here. Uh, but this was a, a newer version that came out with Captain America, Hawkeye, uh, and yeah, two mutants, which is really interesting because this is a half these Avengers are mutants in this time when we just saw the Sentinels attacking New York, uh, when there's this anti-mutant sentiment out there. And not only are they mutants, but they were actually part of a group called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. <laughs> but now they're being accepted as Avengers. So it's, again, very schizophrenic. Also, like in comic book history, this is the first time that bad guys in a, in a comic are making a distinct transition to being heroes. Even Namor at this time is still regarded as a villain, despite having served in the all Winter squad and the invaders during World War II. He still wasn't even accepted as a hero when he was fighting the Nazis. I uh, did flood the Holland Tunnel a few times. So, oh, yeah, know. there was that thing. Yeah. People remember those things. People don't forget. Like, yeah, he did fight Nazis, but he did drown my uncle. Oh, uh, when you put it <laughs> so. that way. Damn. <laughs> it's like, I do appreciate his efforts against the Nazis, but I don't know Uncle Joe anymore. Namor's not making it easy. No, he's really not. Um, throughout this uh, this issue, we see like a lot of imagery. Basically, like a, a lot of the theme here is kind of like backlash against heroes um, and like some of the damage they're causing, which is also a theme we've seen uh, throughout the MCU movies, uh, Civil War, um, Ultron, and all that. Where there are big themes of those movies, but we're finally seeing a lot of that here too. We're seeing some images of like Hulk battling and causing destruction, Fantastic Four battling creatures in New York. Um, there's just there's a lot of there's a lot going on. And while these heroes are there to save things, um, you know, from the perspective of civilians, it's just like there's a lot of bad shit happening. Like, yeah, we're happy the the Fantastic Four saved the day battling this creature, I guess. But like half these city blocks got knocked down, too. So we're seeing a lot of the real world uh, repercussions of these, you know, super heroic, so to speak. Uh, then we see a couple things happen. We see some fire in the sky. We see some boulders in the sky. This is after there was a little flood that, that Phil was kind of firsthand uh, at at the zoo. And uh, like a running theme with Phil is like he's always just obsessed with getting out there to cover things like he wants to go take the pictures. And his wife is like Doris, who's now his wife, is like, yeah, but you said you'd like spend the day with the kids at the zoo. So maybe you shouldn't go take the pictures. And he's like, but I have to. And they're like, but we're at the zoo. And I'm just thinking like the zoo's flooding. Why are you arguing about who's taking pictures? And like, <laughs> if we should stay at the zoo. It's flooding. Get out of the zoo, Doris. Jeez, calm down. But anyway. Man, when I was a reporter, I, I would I would convince my girlfriend to go get dinner with me as an excuse to travel like an hour and a half outside of where we were at to go cover a rally or something. It's like, oh, you, <laughs> oh wait. I thought we were going to town tonight. Instead, we're with a bunch of homeless people. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that there was this rally here, too. You know what? Since I'm here anyway, why don't I just cover it? And I happen thing? to have my camera with me and my recorder so you, and my notepad. You really understand Phil Sheldon, then. Dude, I did some dumb shit in my <laughs> early 20s. <laughs> and you're still here. Gotta get those okay. stories. You do. and uh, But it turns out all these events were preceding the arrival of the Silver Surfer, who, of course, he is only there to precede the arrival of Galactus. But uh, I enjoyed the arrival of the Silver Surfer. Again, Alex's Ross's art is just phenomenal here. I really love the image of him flying a in through the boulders or what I really love is the, the cover art to this issue where you see the silver surfer flying in and you see the reflection of Johnny storm, the human torch in his, you know, in his silverness, so to speak, uh, just incredible cover uh, to this issue. But that now we're, now we're at the scene of this where silver surfer and, and human torch are battling. And then of course this leads to the arrival of Galactus 
an incredible, incredible splash page showing the arrival of Galactus and him shining in the sun. Like the colors that we see, like the colors of the of the rainbow shining in the rays that are coming over Galactus. I mean, he just looks like this. Well, as he is completely larger than life character that has arrived here on Earth. Um, eventually, after we, we see some images of the battle here, of course, this is the very famous battle of the Fantastic Four battling a Galactus after he arrives at the Earth to have a little snack because he is the eater of worlds. He, not Bray Wyatt for the wrestling fans out here, but he does uh, eat planets for a living. It's, uh, it's what he does. It's how he satisfies his hunger. Some people use Snickers. Galactus uses planets. Uh, eventually, the Fantastic Four does save the day, but of course, J. Jonah Jameson, he's calling them a hoax, uh, obviously. Uh, I I like the scene here where Peter Parker shows up like um, Phil Sheldon is in, is in J. Jonah Jameson's office because he works with various different newspapers. Uh, and he was actually um, well, we'll see in the next issue. He actually interviews J. Jonah Jameson um, about the, the death of Captain George Stacy. But in this scene, uh, Peter Parker shows up in, J- in J.J.'s office uh, while Phil is in there and he's got these Spider-Man photos. And, and Peter Parker's like, hey, man, I got these new Spider-Man photos. Don't worry, J.J. They're going to they're going to make him look so bad. You're going to you're going to love it. And and. And Phil's like, man, we see kind of Phil thinking to himself. He's like, man, this little weasel Peter Parker, what a piece of shit. Uh, this is not a quote, of course. What a piece of shit uh, trying to make Spider-Man look bad. He shouldn't be doing journalism like that. You should just be trying to tell people what's happening. And, the, of course, the irony being that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. And Phil doesn't realize that. And, you know, you know this is just how he's making making a living uh, by trying to please his boss and getting access to these photos of himself. Uh, but, of course, Jay Jonah hates Spider-Man. So Peter kind of has to put that spin on it. Uh, but I just enjoy that that whole scene uh, of Phil uh, kind of you know thinking thinking that Peter Parker. We see it referenced in the next episode too. Next episode, here I go again. Next issue, uh, where, where Phil just thinks Peter Parker is this Weasley little piece of shit trying to screw over Spider Man. Uh, of course, as as the general public doesn't know either, without having any idea that he is in fact Spider Man. Um, and moving along, we see a little bit more here of uh, like kind of backlash against heroes. Like Tony Stark is getting gets all his defense contracts canceled, uh, and then uh, P- Phil kind of just has his like "What's wrong with you, people?" moment. He he just like flips out. He's like like a minute ago, the Fantastic Four saved us from Galactus, and now you people are all in the street just upset about heroes. Uh, and he's just like, look up at the sky, have some appreciation for the fact that we're here in the world and we're safe and we're alive, and it's thanks to these people. So that's that's kind of how we end up that that issue there uh, after this pretty epic battle with the Fantastic Four is Phil just kind of having his flip out moment on everybody because he has spent his whole life covering the Marvels and he's come to appreciate what they've done for the world but he still sees people on the street uh, kind of flipping out and and not giving them the respect they deserve. So what do you think of, of this, this issue overall that kind of shows more of the backlash against the heroes, uh, against the Marvels, even as they're saving the entire world from threats like Galactic? I mean, that's very much like, you know, I, I, I want to say the rest of modern society right now. I mean, there, there's that old adage. It's like, why do we love to raise up heroes only to see them fall and moments like this? And I mean, could you imagine just for the citizens of New York in the Marvel Universe, how exhausting it must be with the city always constantly under attack and it's just like oh well you know last week the sinister six robbed a bank and i almost got tossed off a bridge by dr octopus and this week galactus was here and oh wait the kingpin just went ahead and put a hit out on me excuse me i need to go make sure the melter didn't destroy my car (laughs) it must suck so the melter so like there's a certain dreaded melter there's like a certain degree of 
I can see how they could become kind of desensitized to this. So part of me like gets it and I want to hate them. The other part of me is like, I can kind of get it. Yeah. I mean, it's understandable. It's got to be, it's got to be a frightening world to live in. And at some point as people are doing in this, uh, in this Marvel universe that we're seeing here, you so you start to question the cause and effect, the chicken and egg, uh, kind of like in Captain America: Civil War, the MCU movie, where they start to question, like, you know, is our heroes here protecting us from bad shit, or is bad shit coming here because of these things? And that, that that's kind of where I think the everyday man is, is having their own conflict over these heroes. Uh, but Phil's not having it because he's been covering these heroes for you know near three decades now, and he's come to appreciate them. So we move on to Marvel's issue number four. And we are now at Phil Sheldon's book signing. He's signing the book Marvels published by Empire Books. And uh, it seems it's been a bit of a success. Um, and yeah, it's nice to see Phil actually, you know, see the fruition of his work. Uh, apparently the, uh, the Avengers were gone at this time. We see him kind of referencing that, uh, the other people wanted the Avengers to come back and, uh, there, he just, all he knows they're off in some galaxy involved in some war between, uh, two different alien races. Oh, of course, he's referring war. Damn, Skippy is referring to the Kree Skrull War. Uh, we also see there was a reveal that the senator who framed them, uh, which originally you know, framed the Avengers in the, the original uh, you know, flap that was mentioned in the last episode, was actually a Skrull. So we're learning about a lot of the uh, the trickery that's been going dun, on dun, behind, behind the scenes here. And then we see a billboard, face of a murderer uh, on the side of a truck. Uh, read the Daily Bugle and learn the truth. It is, of course, a picture of Spider-Man because... The Daily Bugle and Jane and Jonah Jameson are accusing Spider-Man of being responsible for the death of Captain George Stacy, who, of course, is the father of Gwen Stacy, Spider-Man's original love interest, original girlfriend before the uh, the traitorous wench known as MJ arrived. Of course, I don't see what her that bitch. way, but Remzo does. Remzo does. Um, I grew up with NJ. We talked about this in our best couples episode. I actually really enjoyed the Mary Jane Peter Parker couple, but Remzo does not share my thoughts. And I get so triggered. Yeah. Yeah. But these were better times. These are more wholesome times. And I will say Gwen is a much more wholesome, uh, wholesome girl than, than, uh, than MJ. Man, just going Mary back. Jane. I will say he, that. Alex Ross makes the black widow look, Oh my God, she's his. I I love how he does it. I love how he does yes. it, folks. He does it fine. He does it fine. He does her. He does her due justice. Um, Sheldon is is you can tell he's like kind of getting tired and turning into a bit of a sour old man. He even kind of refers him to himself as a sour old man. And as you mentioned, we see the uh, trial of the Black Widow. And uh, yeah, phew, you're not kidding. Anyway. <laughs> she got it going on maybe it's the bangs i don't know it's something it, it's something, something. yeah uh but everywhere the marvels are being basically assaulted and, and denigrated in, in some way or another there are protests against them uh there's like a, a headline we see where uh iron man and the guard guardsman is that a character or is he a guard i think they're referring to iron man yeah, as, as a, guardsman. As yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Lashed out at, at, at uh, protesters who were uh, kind of protesting against Tony Stark uh, for his weapon stuff and that sort of thing. Um, Fucking hippies. And, yeah. 
basically it's it's just it's just continuing from last issue where there's a lot of uh, a lot of problems the public has uh, with last superheroes. They even show I really like the scene they show uh, this reporter interviewing this kid in Harlem who's uh, saying like you know that oh um, they're talking about that the Falcon being you know a, a hero from Harlem and this kid's like the Falcon he ain't no hero not up here yeah his skin be black but inside he's just another white man so you know even even guys you might think would be looked up upon by their communities they're not necessarily because they're often seen as is being as being sellouts uh and we see luke cage later in this episode but uh he, i think he might be a little more respected by his community but in this case the falcon is not seen as respected by his community at all he's seen as just another white man just another sellout so i really like that they show us the nuance of the times here um very much so uh through these through this entire series really um, uh, eventually Galactus comes back to New York and, uh, Reed Richards as Doris exclaims to Phil here, uh, he spoke to everyone through their minds, which is really fun. Really interesting. And, uh, Phil is going, Phil has decided though, he's, he's got a new mission now. He's going to clear Spider-Man of the murder of George Stacy. So he sets about on this. He does not think Spider-Man is guilty of this crime. Um, he also gets sent to, like I mentioned, we do meet Luke Cage, hero for hire here. It's just kind of a, a random scene just to tell the readers that Luke Cage exists. Uh, we don't get to get too much from it there. Um, but uh, jo- um, Phil goes and interviews these cops, and the cops actually don't think that Spider-Man killed George Stacy, which surprises him because the Daily Bugle made it sound like you know he was the number one suspect, and the cops are like, well, yeah, we want him for questioning because he was there but you know we we don't think spider-man's a criminal and we don't think he killed george stacy uh so that's when you know and and you know phil kind of realizes that he's getting a bad shake spider-man's getting a bad deal from jay jonah jameson so maybe he should be there to provide the counter argument to actually give him the fair shake here uh so he goes about interviewing people about gwen uh, you know uh captain stacy's death phil kind of takes on the role of uh sort of investigative journalist here uh even interviews jay jonah jameson and it's just very obvious to him that it's about that he just hates spider-man jay jonah jameson even and says, yeah, yeah, th- this has nothing to do with that ca- this case at all. But Spider-Man's just, uh, you know, he's a piece of garbage, blah, blah, blah. Um, and eventually he interviews Gwen Stacy. Actually, no, I, I, sh- I skipped over something. He also interviews Doc- Dr. Octopus in prison as well. Man, Dr. Octopus spends so much time looking goofy, even though he's <laughs> without his arms sitting in a jail cell. This is probably the most intimidating he's ever looked. Yeah, I will say I think the bangs hold him back, just like they they enhance Black Widow. Uh, Doc Ox bangs are what he's not pulling it off. Yeah, not pulling off. But here he actually looks, yeah, a little a little less ridiculous for once here. He actually looks kind of like a normal He looks guy. like one of the serial killers from that show, Mindhunters. Looks like Bill Belichick to me here. Oh, my gosh. I can't <laughs> unsee that now. You can't? No, no. Doc Ock is now Bill Belichick for, uh, always and forever. It was always Brady. He led the team. But we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but Dr. Octopus kind of just admits without admitting it that he 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 kind of did he he did it and he kind of set Spider-Man up f- to make it look like he was responsible for George Stacy's death. So Phil knows it. He knows it. But uh, he has to prove it. He has to clear Spider-Man's name. And he goes on to interview Gwen Stacy and, and he gets to know Gwen over a series of uh, several days. Um, and Gwen doesn't even think Spider-Man does it. She sees Spider-Man as a hero. Now, Gwen Stacy is Peter Parker's girlfriend. And there's a, a part here where Phil, too, is like, I don't know what she's season that weasel Peter Parker again, which is hilarious to me too. But but Gwen doesn't even know that Peter Parker is Spider-Man here too. So she is actually talking about Spider-Man as someone different than her boyfriend, which I, I do kind of find ridiculous to some extent, but you know, she never knew. No, I know. I know. I, I just saying in general, yeah. like, like 
if we're being realistic here, like how do you not know this? It's it's not it's it's one step less ridiculous than like in I'm gonna reference a, a, a ridiculous movie anyway, but in Batman Forever, um, um, they what's her name? Who is the actress? Uh, Nicole Kidman. She doesn't know. She like never knows that Batman. She's she's kissed them both and still doesn't know to like the very end that Batman is Bruce Wayne. What's worse? What, what's worse than that or Lois Lane not knowing that Clark Kent is Superman? No, that's absurd. That's, that's absurd. <laughs> We gotta get. We gotta. Know he's we gotta. Mostly. We gotta cut Gwen some credit. I guess so. Yeah, she's just. She's. She's a little more innocent. I guess her. Her interactions with Spider-Man were certainly less so than those of Lois and Superman. Yeah. Um. As I was saying, with uh, with the relationship with Submariner, he's back now. He's he's invading New York City again. Uh. But they 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 worked it out. It was just a misunderstanding. But what I liked about the scene is that Gwen Stacy is just kind of in awe of all this Atlantean shit. She's taking the time out. She just says like, "It's beautiful, isn't it?" And Phil's like, "Yeah, it, it was." And they're like they're like really impressed by this Atlantean technology. Uh. They've kind of stood down, and there's no more battle anymore. And they're just taking the time to absorb absorb the beauty of it all. And and I think Phil here really uh, uh, pre- comes to appreciate Gwen Stacy here, and he decides like she, he's going to get to the bottom of her father's death here. He wants to he wants to clear Spider Man's name, and he wants to do it for Glenn as well. But before this can even happen, um, Phil sees that uh, like the next day here that uh, Gwen has gets kidnapped by uh, the Green Goblin, and this is of course the famous scene just from the perspective of Phil, where uh, Gwen Stacy does die. Spider-Man tries to save her and with his web as Green Goblin drops her from the bridge and when he saves her with the or attempts to save her with his webbing it actually snaps her neck and seeing this happen from Phil's point of view is just so riveting I mean he even says like I want to tell myself she's okay but I've seen the difference between an alive body and a dead body in my when I was you know um, you know doing war correspondence and I, I knew immediately and it just it just affected him so much um, he's he's so greatly affected by Gwen's death that this is the point that he just kind of decides to move on. Like this is the, this is the end for him. He's done with this. He's done covering this superhero stuff. Um, Marsha, I think Marsha is Marsha his daughter or is Marsha his assistant? Marsha, I think is the assistant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marsha's the assistant that he brought on at one point, helping him, and she she's like telling him he's got to do all this new stuff, and he's like, you know, he wants she wants him to do a documentary, and he's like. Actually, you've been helping me out long enough. You are so passionate about this. I think it's actually time for you to make this documentary. So he basically like sends Marsha to go, you know, make this documentary about the Marvels and basically like continue his work in a different form. And uh, the final scene here is where uh, Phil just wants to take a little picture, a normal picture with some normal little kid, and it's him and Doris. They get a picture with this kid who is riding by on his bike. Uh, this kid's name is Danny Cash, <laughs> which, I, which I like. Who, of course, becomes a uh, a one of several ghost writers in the future the but i like that ghost he was just, writer yeah i like how I, johnny blaze will always be my ghost writer but it's it's a merely a product of the generation I, I i you know grew up reading comics in uh actually i think one of the issues i grab, grabbed from the fuck it pile is uh uh the origin of johnny blaze ghost writer hashtag so fuck it pile one. just another reason to join the patreon and hear my reviews from the fuck it pile hashtag fuck it pile but that does end it we end this series with this little picture of uh phil and his wife and the young danny catch the uh, uh, just a normal little kid uh and that does it for marvels so 
Let's get right into it, Remzo. What you think, man? To give any, th- I have, I have, I have collected, read, seen everything that Alex Ross has put out there. His Instagram, folks. If you're not following him there, Facebook, everywhere. I mean, you're you're missing out on a great part of your day. He puts that stuff really, like at least daily. Um, whether it's sketches or full on new new works he's doing or just other stuff. I mean, the the man's prolific. Uh, it's a ten. I mean, who, who, who am I almost feel like, who am I to rate Alex Ross's work? So I'm sorry. No, it's a five. So it's a five. Oh, yeah. 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 My best. See, I get, I get, I gave it a 10 out of five. It's so good that you had to double <laughs> it from the maximum score. Uh, yeah. So it's a five and Kurt Busick, um, I, you know, like, like you said, you, when, when we did that Avengers episode a while ago, that's when I really started to pay attention. It's like, you know, I, I know of him, but I've never really paid attention. And since then I've been looking at a lot of his stuff and going in here, it's like the man, uh, he's, I don't, I don't know why I didn't know as much about his work prior about his body of, of content he's created. I think he's insanely underrated. Um, you know, even as I spoke with others about him, it's like, especially for the second print listeners, it's like, we're all, I think a majority of us are really starting to understand like this guy did a lot of really great, important stuff. Uh, I'm giving it a 10. So I'm sorry. I'm a 10 out of five. I'm giving you a five out of five. So I'm giving, I'm giving it a full score, a 10 out of 10 for story and art. Well, 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 um, as I kind of referenced in the beginning, as I think was probably obvious from both of us from the beginning, uh, how could I give this art anything but a five? Uh, I, I don't, you see could give it I a can. 10 out of five. <laughs> I could give it a 10 out of five. I guess, I guess that's the only other way. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Alex Ross is simply phenomenal. Like, I would kind of compare him to when we talk about guys like Alan Moore or uh, Neil Gaiman. They are truly amazing writers who happen to do comic books. Uh, Alex Ross is a truly amazing painter, a truly amazing artist whose work could stand in any medium at all. uh, But he happens to do comic books and and his work is amazing. Uh, So art five out of five. No question. I I don't know. I, I, I. I don't think we've done this since the very first issue of this podcast, but you know, I, I try to, st- sometimes I try to think outthink myself on scores. I try to say, well, uh, maybe I, I can't go give this thing a full five and a five and five because, 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 because what, I don't know. The story is perfect. What, what could, what could I possibly question here? Um, uh, I, the writing is brilliant. Uh, the art is carried by the writing as much as the writing is carried by the art. They work so well in conjunction with each other. I think in my mind, um, before I came and read this again, after it's been 20 years or so, uh, that I, I, all I could think about was the beautiful art of Alex Ross. Uh, but that art, it's it's beautiful because it's beautiful, but it's also beautiful because of the way it tells this story. And this story is written by Kurt Busiek, and the dialogue is beautiful. The dialogue is amazing. The messages in the story about life, I think, are amazing. I, I just, I, I continually am awestruck. Phil is by like Forrest Gump. I mean, really, he's he's like Forrest <laughs> Gump. Yeah, it kind of is. I mean, it's a little more profound than Forrest Gump, I would say, actually. But uh, no, I just I just there's so much I love about this. And and it's all done because uh, because we felt so invested with this character of Phil Sheldon. I think that's uh, something very underrated in comics. We we often do see some things from like we see these civilian characters and sometimes we see how they react to superhero events. But we never really see them completely through a civilian perspective. And I, I feel like we Kurt really built up the character of Phil Sheldon. We really understood his motivations. We really understood why. 
why he was feeling the way he was feeling about the world that he that was unfolding around him about these marvels and i just think it's it's absolutely phenomenal so i i gotta agree with you here i'm not gonna i'm not gonna outthink myself on this one five out of five for the writing too this is a 10 out of 10 and i don't see how any other score would be justified i don't believe we have both given anything i don't think either of us have given anything a 10 since we both did that for secret War. i I mean uh iron man extremist is the only one i could think of i don't think i gave it a 10 we gave it a 10 did we We gave it a 10 yep Oh, all right. So, well, then, then, then I don't have a good memory. That's the real lesson. Of the here. thirty plus episodes we've done, we've been very, very scarce. And even for stuff that we've given a lot of praise to, I think our most average score at on a scale of twenty combined is like a fourteen and a half, which isn't. We need a one really good fan who wants to go back and actually compile the scores from all the episodes to go, go do that because I don't want. To do oh, that. by the way, you want you want to hear something <laughs> disgusting? So our lowest, our lowest reviewed comic was the Battle Scars series, uh, yes. which you might <laughs> find as the uh, How Did Nick Fury Become a Black Dude? I was at uh, Third Eye Comics in Annapolis. Shout out to them, the largest comic book warehouse and store on the East Coast. And they were selling that for $10 to the first issue. Wow. And I was like, that is some garbage shit right there. So who would pay that? Just it's not. I, I I actually funny story when I, at the beginning of the Ooh, show hey. when I was talking about the two hundred comics I got rid of I got rid of that one. <laughs> well, can't blame you, but I bet you didn't get ten bucks for it. No, that's, that's- <laughs> I think I gave it away for free. I was like, I've got this on Marvel Unlimited. It's not worth the space in the short box it's in. No, the only thing it's worth for was worth for is doing that podcast episode, which I, I have to think is the best piece of media that came out of that series. By far. That's my, that's the second print comics uh, promise. Uh, Anyway, I think that's all we got today. Uh, Any housekeeping notes before we uh, wrap things up here, Remzo? Of course, as always, uh, and as I mentioned at the top, if you want to hear more about uh, my reviews from the Fuck It Stash, my reviews from the Random Marvel Comics podcast, Remzo, uh, he is currently reviewing Falcon and Winter Soldier with our our friend Caleb Franz. Uh, Just so much bonus content in the Patreon. It's it's actually getting ridiculous now. It is, uh, it's a smorgensbord of awesome. Awesomeness. That's all I can say. Folks, uh, your support goes a long way. It costs you nothing, but means everything to us. A five-star review on Apple Podcasts helps us grow the show, let people know the fun we're having, and gets us in those trending charts. Leave a review. Mark and I check it pretty often, and we'll read it live on the show. And that is all we've got to say for this week. Until next time, we have one message to send to you, and that is what, Remzo? Read comics. Change the world. Change the world. Good night, America. Adios. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.